Good morning. Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Ruth? And I just want to remind you that uh, we're having prayer meetings during the week now and asking the Lord to do His great work in us and through us for the sake of the gospel, for His name. And uh, we enjoyed some time together in prayer this week. We have prayer meetings on Sunday morning here in the prayer room at 9 a.m. and also Monday morning at 7 and then Wednesday evening with the adult equipping class and then Friday evening as well. So we're thankful for this opportunity and the promise of Christ to be with us when we gather for prayer, that his will will be accomplished in our lives. And certainly, the more we are motivated to pray, the more we long to pray, the more we realize our dependence on Christ. The less we pray, the less we are mindful of that and seek to do his work in our own strength, the more we are dependent on our own strength. And so let us come together for that even this week as well. Would you stand with me this morning? And I'd like for us to read together in unison the entire chapter of Ruth 1. And then we'll, Lord willing, be able to complete our study of Ruth 1 this morning. The first scene of Ruth in this Glorious display of God's providence and His love. Read this with me together. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go! Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake 
that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. They then lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, You are the same God today. You are our God that we see working lovingly faithfully throughout this story. That is amazing to me, Father. We see You at work wooing Your people to repentance and to be satisfied in You and to trust You and to know You and cling to You and to take shelter under Your wings. And You woo us to that as well today by Your steadfast love and faithfulness. And you do it all for the sake of Christ. Then to bring Christ into the world. To save. And now to proclaim the Gospel into the world. And to save. You do these great and good things. To fulfill the plans that you have promised to us and to your Son through His saving work. Father, we delight in you. May we always remember and see through this story your steadfast love and your faithfulness and the glory of the salvation of the Redeemer. May we not mistake the providence at work in this story for something, anything else. May we see and know that it is You working in the lives of Your chosen people for their good and Your glory. May we take this story to heart. May we apply it as a lens over our own lives so that we may be restored be useful, and be fruitful, and bring you glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Psalm 117 says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples, for great is His steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Psalm 48.9, We have thought on Your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of Your temple. 
Psalm 23 and verse 6. Surely goodness and steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. These verses are put on display in the story of Ruth. Ruth is a personal account of Yahweh's faithful hand providentially working in the daily lives of His covenant people to show them His great steadfast love. Ever since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, God and His steadfast love is on a redemptive mission to bring many sons to glory, as the New Testament says, and to do so through the coming and the saving work of the seed, the promised seed, Jesus Christ. And Ruth shows us that God will do all that is necessary in the lives of His chosen people to graciously place them and and bring them and keep them, mature them on that path, like we said last week, from fall to glory. He will fulfill every one of His gracious promises to all those who have turned from their sin and, and their own human efforts to rest in the saving work that He promises to do through that coming seed, through the Messiah, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And Ruth demonstrates these very realities through a very personal story. In steadfast love, Naomi and Ruth are brought from futility to fruitfulness. That's the story. They're brought from futility to fruitfulness, emptiness to fullness. And it's all in spite of their pagan past. It's in spite of their economic brokenness that we see in the beginning of this story. It's in spite of their ethnicity, which comes up many times in in this story. It's in spite of their their sinfulness and their unfaithfulness and their immaturities and inabilities and impatience. In spite of the hardship they have experienced in their lives. Whether or not it was even a result of their own sin. Yahweh graciously works His redemption and fulfills His saving purposes to those who trust Him and trust in His promises. He does that for the joy of His chosen people. He does that for the sake of Christ, which will become more clear as we move along in the story. And He does so for His own eternal glory. He will even take His people and so shape their lives by His steadfast love as a potter does the clay that He will make them useful to participate in His saving and redemptive plans in the lives of other people. What a glorious Redeemer is Yahweh. And we see that glorious Redeemer at work in the book of Ruth. Yet, I'm sure you've noticed already, what a strange providence our God often employs to accomplish those glorious plans. A very painful providence. And we're meant to see God's hand of providence moving silently behind all that takes place in the book of Ruth, moving His people from futility to fruitfulness for the sake of God's saving purposes in Christ. And so I want to invite us all to take the book of Ruth as a lens through which we must learn to look at our own lives and to see Yahweh's providential hand of steadfast love and faithfulness working behind the circumstances of our own lives, fulfilling His saving promises to every one of us who are in Christ. 
we have to understand that the Old Testament is not just a book of stories for us to enjoy, but that it is a, a statement about God. The way Yahweh worked in the story of Ruth is the way He works in all of His chosen people throughout all ages. The way He works with us. And isn't it so easy to miss what God's hand of providence is doing in our own lives through His steadfast love and faithfulness toward us? Have you missed it at times? We tend to think of the events of our lives, our daily lives, in a very human way. We think of either the joyful or grievous circumstances as a merely, merely as a result of human doing or undoing. We think of it all on a horizontal level. It happened by chance. I'm always stuck with these bad luck options. And the Holy Spirit means for us to look at the book of Ruth and see something very different and learn to see that in our own lives. That the steadfast love and faithfulness of God is working for our salvation as He did for Ruth, for our sanctification as He was for Naomi, for repentance and faith and bringing about us in His work to become useful and fruitful for Him, to persevere in our faith toward Him, and for His eternal saving plans, all through the daily providential movements of His wise and loving hand. What we see here is what is going on in our lives, and we simply have to see it for what it is. Place the lens of Ruth over your own life and let it adjust the focus from fogginess to clarity so that you can see the working of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God in your own daily life and learn to trust Him, to turn from unbelief to rest in Him. As we come back to the chapter 1 this morning, I would like for us to realize a few things about Hebrew. This story is written originally in the Hebrew language. You know that. And so I want to tell you, first of all, that Hebrew is a very picturesque demonstrative, illustrative language. Think about, for example, the, the difference in number of narratives in the Old Testament versus narratives in the New Testament. There's a good number of narratives in the Gospel, but the Old Testament is a, often a, it's a story that unfolds before us. But it's stories about theology, about God, about how He works among His creation. And so by divine inspiration, historical people and places and events are woven into these narrative accounts to communicate to the audience divine truth. That's what we have in the book of Ruth. And it makes God's providence all the more amazing. Because He knowing and orchestrating all the events of the lives of Naomi and Ruth and so on, knew that one day this account would be inspired and breathed into the Scriptures so that we could have it for us as an example and learn a truth about God and about how He works among His people. And very often, here's the second thing to remember, very often in Hebrew, the most important concept in a biblical account is found at its center. Now that's different than what we typically do as Westerners. We usually leave our most impactful points to what point? The end. 
right? We like to have the big punch at the end. We call it a punchline when we're telling a joke, right? Well, in the book of Ruth and in much Hebrew narrative, the most important point is at the center. That's helpful for us to know. The center, the turning point, the climax of the narrative often reveals to us the most important truth. For example, think about on a smaller level than than the book of Ruth. Think about how many of the Psalms of David we read are like this. You open your Psalms in the morning and you begin to read Davidic Psalm and first first off, he's, he's overflowing from his heart to God about his complaints. He's overwhelmed with what's going on in the lives of his enemies. He's overwhelmed with fear. He's overwhelmed with guilt. He's overwhelmed with shame and so on and so on. And he's despairing and the psalm begins and works into that sort of dynamic and his heart is overflowing in prayer. But then he comes to the center and what happens? But God, I remember you in your temple. And his eyes behold the majesty of Christ and the glory of God. And he remembers who God is and what God has done. And then what's the rest of the psalm like? I will praise your name for you have, you know, and he goes on and on. What's, where's the most important point in the psalm? The center. When David puts the focus on who God is and what he has done. That's how Hebrew narrative works as well. One chapter, or chapter one, this particular chapter, because it can be Um, it can be seen, a very important point in the middle, it very easily divides up into three sections. Let me give you those three sections. You can see them in your outline that I gave to you in your bulletin. First, what we talked about last week, number one, the path of rebellion. That's verses one through five. We looked at that last week. And that's visualized, the path of rebellion, I'm calling it, is visualized in the narrative by Naomi's family moving from Bethlehem the Moab. Right? That's, a, that's one movement in this first scene. But then, the second part comes into play beginning in verse 6. And I'm calling it the place of repentance. Verse 6 through 18. That's visualized in the narrative by a place somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem where Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth have this very important conversation. And then, The third part of this first scene is the path to restoration, verses 19 to 22. And that's visualized, the narrative, by Naomi and Ruth returning from Moab to Bethlehem. So you can see the very picturesque, illustrative flow of this first chapter. It's largely depicted for us by a movement from one place to another. Bethlehem to Moab. Somewhere between Bethlehem and Moab. And then from Moab back to Bethlehem. And the center of this first chapter, the center of this first scene of the story, the turning point of the chapter, the main focus of this section is found in verses 6 through 18. So your attention will be drawn to this as the center because of a few reasons. And think about this. You are, we are drawn, just naturally in reading through this text, we're drawn to verses 6 through 18 because the passing of time in the events of this first scene, slow down dramatically. Think about it. The first five verses, we're we're unfolding over ten years, right? It says it in the text. But then, 6 through 18, 
that amount of time is slows way down, and all of a sudden, you have a few moments where you are brought in close to this very dramatic conversation. And then again, the end of the chapter, they move from Moab to Bethlehem. Our proximity to the characters moves from being somewhat distant in verses 1 through 5 to coming up close and personal as the author brings us near to even hear and listen to this interchange among these three widows in verses 6 through 18. And most importantly, at the beginning of verse 6, there is one word that appears at least 10 times from verses 6 to 22. Did you catch what the word was as we read it? Ten times. And you have to remember something. When when the Jewish people would gather together on Sabbath day and open the book of Ruth, they didn't all have their own scrolls to follow. They listened to it being read. And so when they would hear a word repeated again and again and again, that would help them to know what is the point of this story? The word that's repeated at least ten times is the concept of returning, repenting, converting. That word in the Old Testament that you see there at the beginning of verse 6, and she arose with her daughters-in-law to return. That word is used throughout the Old Testament for that concept of turning, repenting, conversion. That word's used for conversion, salvation in, in, the, in the Old Testament. That's why I'm calling that center part of the chapter, this, this first scene, the place of repentance. And so here's the main point that we truly need to be mindful of as we see the narrative of Ruth unfold in this first, first section. Here it is, and you can see it in your outlines as well. In steadfast love, Yahweh will draw His people to a place of repentance through the hidden working of His faithful hand and providence in order to make them fruitful in His redemptive plans. You can count on this. This is what happened to Ruth, and you can count on this in your life if you are in Christ. In steadfast love, we, mustn't, we must not mistake God's bitter providence and think He doesn't love me. Because in steadfast love, Yahweh will draw His people, even through painful providence as the story unfolds for us, He will draw His people to a place of repentance through this hidden working of His faithful hand of providence in order to make them fruitful in His redemptive plans. That's what He's doing in the lives of Naomi and Ruth in this first chapter. That's what He's doing in your life and in mine. Let's see how this chapter unfolds and then we'll, we'll seek to place it as a lens over our own lives. Last week, we really did the first point together, verses 1 through 5. We, it's visualized for us by Elimelech's move from Bethlehem to Moab. I'm just going to skim quickly through this and give you a little bit of a, a review. Together we saw, first of all, Israel's unfaithful state. When the judges ruled, it was the day that everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes, Judges 21-25. And then we saw Yahweh's faithful response to that. He sent a famine. He promised that He would in Deuteronomy 28 when His people would turn from Him 
He would not let them go to be destroyed by their own idolatry and worldliness and sin. And so he would bring famine upon them according to his faithful promise to woo them back to himself. That's God's steadfast love. He never lets us go. And then we see one family's unfaithful move, verses 1 through 2. Elimelech and his family should have understood what was going on between God and Israel. They knew the words of the covenant that God had so graciously spoken to them. They should have turned to God in humble repentance and faith, asking God to pour out His mercy and grace upon them and meet their needs according to His promise. Even if they were the only Ephrathites in Bethlehem doing that. Instead, what did they do? The man whose name means my God is King moved his family out of the house of bread. Bethlehem. Moved his family away from the one place on earth that God in the Old Covenant had made holy, given to His people, and in which He had promised to bless them and provide for them. This was a faithless move. And a sinful move. Because for Elimelech and his family to move was a turning away from trusting God's will and His promises and His word and His goodness. It was a rebellious move because Elimelech and his family chose to take refuge among a people whom God had cursed for their idolatry and their sinfulness and a people whom, who had hated and plagued God's chosen people, tried to destroy God's chosen people. Many years. Elimelech moved his family from Bethlehem to Moab because they valued earthly security. They valued their own human wisdom. They, they would rather trust in their own abilities rather than the power of God. They decided to continue to pursue their own way rather than turn toward God alone. And God gave them opportunity to do that, to turn to Him. And as we can see in the text, apparently their hearts grew more cold to God and warmed up even more to Moab because in the beginning, they're called sojourners and by the end of chapter or verse 2, they remained there. So how does God show His steadfast love and faithfulness now? Yahweh's faithful response. God will not let this family go and have their own way to their own destruction. So He painfully and yet lovingly took the earthly life of Elimelech. Naomi says that later on. He says, the mighty hand of God has done this in my life. Again, you would think that the family would not only heed the warnings of the famine, but also the chastening route of God through taking of Elimelech, but they don't. And so they persist there. And the boys marry idolatrous Moabite women, which for their children meant alienation from Yahweh. And again, Yahweh responds in steadfast love and faithfulness with a strong, strong hand. Yahweh's faithful response, verse 5, Painful providence of God takes the earthly life of both Mechlon and Kilion in the prime of their lives before they could have children. Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth are left desolate. Naomi is left without a husband, without sons, without earthly resource. She has indeed felt the strong, bitter providence of God. Yahweh with a faithful hand of providence is at work unfolding his redemptive plans, though, so mysteriously, heavily, painfully, bitterly for Naomi at the end of her 10-year stay in Moab. Now, 
I want to comment about something right here because I assume that some of you are probably thinking about it. Certainly, Naomi is not sinless in this story, but this story does not draw a straight and clear, simple line between her own personal disobedience and the bitter providence of God to take her husband and her sons. We're probably thinking like, well, her husband wanted to go to Moab. It doesn't say whether or not she wanted to. Maybe she went kicking and screaming. It doesn't say one way or another. Well, some some other places in the text will clear, clear some of that up as we go, and we'll look at that at the very end. But to say that's the simple answer, if we were to talk to Naomi and say, Naomi, that happened to you because you went the wrong way. That's too simplistic. We would be much like Job's comforters, wouldn't we, in speaking to Naomi like that. God was chastening the unfaithfulness of Naomi's family, but God was doing so much more than that. There's so much more in this than a simple one-for-one. God is doing so much more than just causing them even to return to Him from the path of rebellion. And the story of Ruth will unfold much more of what God is doing in His secret, mysterious, and loving providence. It's just like the song goes, right? We're going to sing it at at the end of the service today. God moves in a mysterious way. I want us to sing this song with understanding, particularly from the life of Ruth. There's that that one verse that goes, "His His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. What's the next line? The bud will have a bitter taste, but what? Sweet will be the flower. That's the story of Ruth. That's your story and mine as well, in Christ. And so finally, God draws Naomi to turn to him, to repentance, to to bring forth from the pain of her bitter experience more than she could ever imagine. Yahweh takes these desolate, humbled women and leads them by the hand to the place of repentance. Number two, this morning... There's your review from last week. Number two, let's look at the new part of this text, the place of repentance. Again, the place of turning back to God. The place of repentance and conversion is vividly portrayed to us by a location. It's very illustrative in the text. We're stopped somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem. And God is at work there in that place, powerfully at work. place of repentance, we see these three women and their responses to the steadfast love of God. First, I want you to see Naomi's repentance. She has been humbled, brought to repentance, and changed. How do we know Naomi was indeed repentant? First, I want you to know that her actions indicate her repentance. Her actions indicate her repentance. That's verse 6 and 7. How many times does the text have to say it? Again, imagine yourself reading or hearing this story read. Her daughters-in-law and she rose to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and gave them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. She's going home. She rose to return from. She set out from. They went on the way to return. 
And as you think about that, that that's a big deal because Moab, or, um, Naomi is, is leaving the place where her husband and her sons had died. She's leaving a lot behind. And she's going to the place of God's promise. And I want you to notice why she set out to return to the place of God's promises. And it'll tell us something more even about God. It was not only through the driving hand, if we can say it that way, it's not just because of the driving hand of God's painful providence, but coupled with that, through the drawing hand of God's kind providence. Where do you see God's kind providence here? She's going back because she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. Oh, this is, this is that part of the cycle of the story of the judges again. God's people had sinned. They had turned from Him. He had chastened them with bitter providence. But then they, they cry out to Him. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And how does God answer that? According to His promise, with steadfast love and mercy and grace and kindness. And He pours out food upon them. He opens the sky to rain and He commands the earth to bear fruit. She had heard that God had visited His people in that way. Merciful movements of God. What a loving, what loving instruments God uses to bring His children back to trust Him, to obey Him and delight in Him. We don't deserve either the bitter providence or the kind providence. We deserve to be completely ignored by God because of our sin and sent on our way. And yet, God deals with us in love and faithfulness. He calls, He brings His wandering children to repentance. Consider the words of David who knew well both the bitter providence of God and the kind providence of God. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Was David thankful for his afflictions? You bet he was. Psalm 119.71, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 119.75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans 2 and verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you where? To repentance. God faithfully draws His children to Himself away from their destructive sin by both bitter and kind providence. Whatever is better for the child. Whatever he knows the child will respond to. There is a sense in which this twofold drawing is also true for those whom God is calling into salvation. Making His children. He calls them to turn from sin and trust in Him. By what? What's the appeal of the Gospel? It's both the the condemning weight of the law and what? The kindness of His mercy and grace. Through Christ. Behold the goodness of our redeeming God and His drawing sinners to salvation and His children to restoration. 
So as a result of God's drawing providence, Naomi was humbled and, and repentant. But not only do her actions show her repentance, but her words indicate her repentance. And this we see in verses 8 through 15, particularly verses 8, 9, and 13. Notice verse 8, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She is blessing her daughters-in-law. She is blessing her daughters-in-law. Look at verse 13. Know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Let's see, what am I looking for here? That's the wrong verse. Anyway, I'm not finding it. But, but Naomi is blessing her daughters-in-law. Though she acknowledges, honestly, I guess that's what I was getting at in verse 13, though she acknowledges that the hand of the Lord has gone out against her, she's not bitter against God. I don't think that's what she means when she says that her life has become bitter. She realizes the bitterness of God's hand in, in her life. Her circumstances have become bitter. But she's not bitter toward her daughters-in-law. She's not glad that they're suffering along with her. She wants blessing to be upon them. In fact, there's a very important word that we see in verse 8 that indicates her heart. She's telling her daughters-in-law, may the Lord, may Yahweh deal kindly with you. That, that word it needs to jump off, at the page, out of, off the page at you. Deal kindly. That's the word for steadfast love. That's chesed in the Hebrew. The famous word that we all try to say and spit on each other. That's, that's the steadfast love of God. She is wishing that upon her daughters-in-law. Doesn't that indicate that she's not bitter at God? I want God's steadfast love to cover your lives. And little does she know that God in great loving kindness is going to answer those prayers of blessing in the life of Ruth. There's, there's hints throughout this, these first chapters that will come true later on in the story. God in great loving kindness is going to answer those prayers with the blessing in the life of Ruth. God is showing Ruth great steadfast love. This is a very important note in the story. Naomi's prayerful blessing is a hint of what is going to come. But then notice her advice. Her advice indicates her repentance. So her words indicate her repentance in her blessing, but also her advice. What we see here is that Naomi and her daughters-in-law begin to set off for Bethlehem, right? She arose. With her daughters-in-law, they, they set off for, for Bethlehem. But then it appears that Naomi stops, turns around, 
tells her daughters-in-law, go back to Moab. And apparently this takes them by surprise as much as it does us. I hope this part in the story bothers you. What? Why are you telling them to go back to, to Moab? Back to false gods? Back to a, a pagan way of life? Back to a life of alienation from God? You want Naomi, what are you saying? Why, why are you telling Ruth and Naomi to, or uh, Orpah and Ruth to, to, to go back? We want, the, we want them. Don't you want them to come with Naomi? If you didn't know the future, you'd be like, what are you doing, Naomi? No, no, no. Bring them with you. Why is she talking like this? On the surface, she's telling them to go back to Moab because if they stay with her and go to Israel, it's going to be very, very unlikely that they will be married, have husbands, have children, experience pleasure in an earthly way. It's very, very unlikely. They'll be widows. That's what's most likely. Sure, they'll, they'll get to glean at the corners of some rich guy's field, but they'll be scraping for the rest of their lives. If they go back to Moab, however, they will likely have all those earthly pleasures and more because they're both still of marriageable age. But on the other hand, if Naomi has been truly humbled and brought to repentance and is being restored by God, why is she telling her daughters-in-law, whom she loves, to go back to the pagan land where her family experienced the bitter chastening hand of God? What do you think the answer to that is? I think it's because Naomi is testing her daughters-in-law. She's being honest with them. She is testing them to see if they're truly willing to give up the pleasures of Moab, the pleasures of the world, and the pleasures of sin for the promises of Yahweh. And she is making it gentle for them, but very clear. And you could imagine that sort of happening. She's going along. She's imagining what's going to happen when she brings these two young women into Bethlehem with her. And she's stewing on this. And all of a sudden, in her own heart, she reads a climax and turns around and she says, wait a minute. Listen, girls. She's testing them to see if they're willing to do what her family should have done before moving to Moab, right? What they should have done, but didn't do. Will these girls be willing to trust Yahweh like that? She's pressing these ladies to see if they're willing to trust Yahweh, to be satisfied in Him, to cling to Him alone, even when their earthly resources turn to dust. I think that Naomi, through the bitter but loving providence of God, has learned that it is far better to cling to Yahweh in the midst of great difficulty than it is to be relieved of that difficulty, give in to temptation, and faithlessly pursue satisfaction and security by clinging to the world. Do you think Naomi's learned that by now? I think she has. And Naomi wants her daughters-in-law to rightly understand the earthly cost of leaving Moab and coming to Bethlehem. And so Naomi wisely and gently makes the choice clear for Orpah and Ruth. They can have Yahweh and the life of a widow, or they can have the worldly abundance of Moab, the worldly abundance of a Moabite wife, but without Yahweh. What do you want? Naomi's testing advice indicates her repentance, her correct values, 
or should I say her corrected values and her spiritual growth. God has been working in Naomi's heart. So how will these two young women then respond to her words? Well, we have Orpah's decision, verse 15. Verse 15, and she said, See, your daughter, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Well, Orpah is certainly grieved to leave Naomi. She loves her. So she wept and she kissed Naomi. But Orpah made her decision. She valued her pagan life and pleasures that came with that life over Yahweh and his promises. She chose exactly the opposite to Moses, for example. Moses, who chose faithfully, and it's recorded there in Hebrews 11, 24-26, it says this, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses resisted or refused that wealthy wedding, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth, because you have Christ, than the treasures of Egypt where you don't have Christ. For he was looking to the reward. So Orpah went back to Moab and she disappears from the pages of redemptive history. Not a good choice. Wouldn't you say? Orpah, Ruth, which one would you have? Which, which choice would you have made? Valuing Yahweh and his promises or the easy life? But not so Ruth. Because then we also see at the place of repentance, Ruth's conversion. I think that's exactly what's going on here. Ruth's being converted. So Ruth said in verse 16, did not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything else, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. While God's steadfast love was at work in Naomi's heart and life, his steadfast love was at work in Ruth's heart, bringing her to conversion, saving her from her sin. In fact, God was even using the rebellion and disaster of Naomi's family's life to bring this Moabite woman Ruth to repentance and faith in Yahweh and to salvation. That's amazing. You think about that? Rewind the story. What are the dominoes that God causes to fall to bring about Ruth's Ruth's conversion? God is a master of taking the greatest pains and becoming productive with them. Even taking our, our sin and using it sinlessly to bring about His redemptive purposes. It's not an excuse for sin, but it's an amazing thing to see the glory of God at work like that. Naomi had not planned this. Right? This, this wasn't Naomi's plan. This was God's plan unfolding. Naomi, under the bitter providence of God, never, never anticipated how many other lives would be redeemed through the instrument of her personal suffering. Think about that. The suffering of God's children is never just for them. 
it's productive in the lives of many, even for generations. We have a masterful God who's full of love and gracious providence. Through Naomi's affliction, Ruth was brought to conversion. Behold, the steadfast love and faithfulness of Yahweh. Ruth's actions indicate her conversion. She, like Naomi, is going, right? (laughs) She's going, going to Bethlehem with Naomi. And her words indicate her conversion. Verse 16b, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge, and so forth. These are are some of the most well-known verses or words in all of Scripture by people inside and outside the church. Have you ever been to a wedding where the husband and wife made this their marriage covenant vows? How many, how many have, have heard this as marriage covenant vows? Yeah, it's, it's extremely popular. You know, it's very interesting because you know what these words are? They are covenant words. These are covenant commitments that, that, that Ruth is making. These words are a faith-filled response to God's covenant words of promise that he spoke to his chosen people. This is Ruth's response. And she's saying it to Naomi. Think about it. What's Exodus 6, 6 through 8 talk about? Here's, here's the very beginning where God, through Moses, takes his people from Egypt and he pulls them out of, of Egypt and he saves them and he redeems them and he makes them his own. And what does he say? God says to, to, to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who has brought you up from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for your possession. I am Yahweh. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will give you a land. And there I will bless you and multiply you for my saving purposes and my glory. And Ruth is responding in faith and repentance to this covenant of Yahweh. Ruth is covenanting that she will leave the people of Moab behind. You think she had any family there? Yes. She's she's calculating the cost and she's making it. She's willing to leave like Moses, leave behind in order to embrace Yahweh and his people and Naomi as her people. Ruth is covenanting that she is willing to leave the gods of Moab behind and embrace Naomi's God and Yahweh the one true God. She is covenanting that she is willing to leave the land of Moab behind and embrace the land that God, that Yahweh promised to to be with His people, to go there, to lodge there, to die there, to be buried there. And could we even go so far to say that Ruth is covenanting to abandon her, her God's promises of an afterlife? That's what this burial is about? To embrace Yahweh's promise of afterlife? Be with Yahweh's people forever. That land will be my land. I'm going to to be buried there. Our God has made a merciful, gracious, and loving covenant with His people, and He will keep it faithfully. And He has so moved 
in Ruth's heart that she is now ready to respond in faithfulness and be converted. And she's committed, isn't she? Look what she says. May Yahweh do so to me and more, if anything else, but death parts me and you. I'm committed. I'm all in on this. This is repentance and faith. That's what this is. This is repentance and faith in the, in the gospel promises of Yahweh. And so together, both Ruth and Naomi, by a working of God's redeeming love, take the path to restoration. They've come to that place of repentance, and now they're headed home to Bethlehem. Let's finish out this chapter. Number three, the path to restoration, 19 to 22. How did the story begin? Unfaithfulness, disobedience of Israel in Elimelech, and a famine. A famine where? In the house of bread. The place where God's promises and provisions are to abound. That's how it began. How does it end? Harvest. That's picturesque, isn't it? That's not by accident. God is showing us that this is how he deals with his people. He has brought Naomi to humble repentance, Ruth to conversion. He's redeeming, he's restoring, and he's making fruitful. That's what he's doing. How bitter the providence of God's faithful hand that led them to this path. But will it be worth it? Will it be worth it? Is it worth it to you? Is it worth it to me? And again, how little they know, even at this point in the story, how much it'll be worth it. Only the greater story will tell. A time of fruitfulness is following. Bethlehem through, through their family is not only going to become the home of whom? David, the great king, but then the birthplace of Jesus. That's Bethlehem, the house of bread. The house that brought to us not just physical bread, but living bread. The bread of heaven. Right? That's, that's what God's doing through this family. That's coming. That's coming. That, that, that brings the story into perspective, doesn't it? This truly is fruitfulness from famine. I mean, we know that Christ is coming in this lineage here. One of Ruth's children will be Christ, will be David. Was it worth it? How, how short-sighted we are with our own lives, aren't we? It's just about yesterday and today and tomorrow. But Ruth couldn't see. Naomi couldn't see the big picture of all that God was doing to redeem His people, to glorify His name forever. This is truly the steadfast love of God. What God is doing is going to have eternal, redemptive impact on a huge scale. Is it different for you and me? I don't think so. Now, God is not using us to bring Christ in the world. He has come. But God is using us to bring people into Christ. How many will follow you and the working of God through your life for generations to come, for all of eternity? Right, this reminds me of the words of Psalm 126, probably a psalm of Israel's return from the Babylonian exile. 
Restore our fortunes, right? <laughs> this is the title of the psalm. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. There's another great psalm that matches the fruitfulness from discipline in the life of Ruth. And in your life, in mine, in Christ. Well, here's the final section. God is working even among the people of Bethlehem as they're stirred by the return of Ruth and Naomi. You see it there. They came to Bethlehem. The whole town was stirred because of them. The woman said, is this Naomi? Wow, she sure doesn't look like she did when she left. She's gotten older in 10 years. Oh, I don't know what they said. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. You see, God is stirring the people of Bethlehem through Naomi's return. Naomi must have been a well-known person along with her family. Remember, they were of the Ephrathites, the, an ancient family in Bethlehem. Old and established. The whole town was stirred. They didn't expect to see her again. And when they did, they were surprised by the change, by what they saw and heard. It seems that she came back a changed woman. Her words to the townspeople bear out that change. And certainly, the people were stirred even more. They questioned, is this, is this the same woman who left? God is stirring the people of Bethlehem through Naomi's humility. Naomi comes back having been humbled. She tells the people to call her Mara instead of Naomi. Naomi means pleasant, right? And Mara means what? Bitter. Notice why she told them to call her bitter. Again, I don't think it's because she is bitter and angry at God, but because, like she says, because the Almighty God has dealt a bitter blow to her life. Right? Call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. She's realizing. She's humbled. She's repentant. And she's ready to be restored. Notice how she describes the effect of God's hand upon her life. She says, I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. What does she mean by that? What do you think? Surely she's not speaking in terms of material possessions because they were fleeing famine to find food. Can't be that. She wasn't, she wasn't bringing bags of barley with her, you know. They were, they were trying to find something to eat. She didn't go away full in that sense. She, she may be referring to her family in that she went away with a husband and sons and now they're gone. But it may also be that she is talking about herself. She went away full of pride, full of self-reliance with her husband, full of worldly wisdom, full of herself, and now she's coming back what? Empty and humble. Notice also that she doesn't excuse her own contribution of unfaithfulness to the situation, whatever it is. She says, the Lord has testified against me. She doesn't have an answer. And she doesn't try to attribute all of this to some human mistake or random chance. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. It's God at work. Do you believe this in your own circumstances? That this is God's hand 
for your good? The town is certainly stirred because when Naomi and her family went away, they did not go away looking and talking like this. But God's providential hand of steadfast love has prepared them to be a ripe harvest, ready to pick and use for his eternal redemptive plans. And then, God is stirring the people of Bethlehem through Ruth's conversion. Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite returned with her. She's not an Israelite woman, is she? What is she to the Israelites this time? She was an outsider, a pagan in the flesh, uncircumcised. That's what they called the, any, any pagan person, uncircumcised. She was separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and so on, like it says in Ephesians 2. She was an outsider, but by the grace of God, God caused Ruth to be converted, and the townspeople begin to see it. And they hear about her conversion and are stirred by it. In fact, someone else hears about it too, right? Who's that someone else? Boaz. We'll see later. He heard about Ruth's conversion and how God was working his steadfast love in her. And she was reflecting that steadfast love back toward God and toward Naomi. There's the story. There's the first scene. In steadfast love, God will draw his people to a place of repentance through the hidden working of his faithful hand of providence. As we close this morning, let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you have painful providence at work in your life right now? Do you? Think about it. What do you think about it? Do you think about it? (laughs) And if so, what do you think about it? Do you attribute it to the random unfolding events? The irresponsibility of another person? Or do you attribute it to the faithful, loving hand of God? Think about that. I hope this story of Ruth will change the way you respond to every single one of the events that come to your life. To know that God in His faithful, loving hand is behind them. That's what Ruth tells us. Do you believe that? Do you receive that as truth for you? And this story compels you to think prayerfully about what God is doing in your life through that painful providence. Our loving God does not do painful things in the lives of His children pointlessly or purposelessly, ever. He is always productive. Always. That's what Romans 5 tells us. We rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produce, produce, produce. God is productive 100% of the time in the lives of His children with every painful providence. So this story gives us some of God's reasons for such painful working, some of the productive things that he wants to do to call us to repentance from unfaithfulness. Is that your place? What response do you need to have to God's providence? To humble us and cause us to trust him willingly? To mature us spiritually and give us wisdom for life? 
or even to prepare us to be useful and fruitful in his redemptive plans, or even to work in the lives of others for their salvation. God has so many productive reasons for the painful providences that he, that he ordains for us. Whatever it may be in your life, know that God is doing this in His great steadfast love and faithfulness far more than you can imagine. Please think about that. Take it to the eternal perspective. Whatever God is doing in your life today that is painful, if you are His child, has an eternal impact. You don't know for how many generations to come it will change the trajectory of people's lives. So that when you reach heaven, you will see and rejoice in Christ together. Whatever it may be, know that God is doing this by His great steadfast love in you. And, help, and, and pray, ask the Holy Spirit to help you to respond to it rightly and, and prayerfully watch and patiently wait for the harvest that, that He will begin in and through your life. And then finally, maybe you're here today and you're like Orpah or Ruth. Think about that. Are you, are you more in their place today? Up to this point, you've been living your life your way without much thought to God's way. You don't live in the Word of God, your Creator, and desire His will for your life above all else. You've been living your own way. And you have enjoyed your life in the world. And even enjoyed your sin from time to time and your disobedience to God's will. But now, today, maybe, or in the last week, something is stirring you. Are you there? Are you thinking about things more than just the life, the day, today, tomorrow, and yesterday? Maybe God has been stirring your heart through someone else's life. Maybe even through someone else's suffering, like God did with Naomi and Ruth. And maybe you've been wondering now, what is the purpose of my life? What's the point of living? And, and what, what is God going to do after I die? Where will I go? What's going to happen after that? And you've grown concerned because deep within your heart of hearts, you know that you don't measure up to God's standard of goodness. You are sinful just like the rest of us. And you wonder if He'll forgive you, but you're not sure. And you'll wonder if He'll welcome you into everlasting life. I want to ask you honestly, is that you today? Is that you? And maybe like Orpah and Ruth, you're wrestling with the cost of turning to God away from your sin to follow Him. Repentance, turning to God away from sin is, is not an easy choice. And so think about the choice. Will you turn away from the promises of Yahweh for the pleasures of, world that, for the, pleasures of the world that are so short? Or will you turn away from the pleasures of the world for the promises of Yahweh that last forever? I want to urge you this morning, if you are there at that place, to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. In your mind, you come to the cross. There you'll see reality. What realities do you see at the cross? One, you will see the reality of your sinfulness. Because at the cross, you see how God feels about sin. There, He punished His Son for the sin of sinners like you and me. You will look at the cross and you will see how sinful you really are, how sinful we are. You'll also see the punishment our sin deserves. Jesus took it for those who trust in Him. That's what our sin deserves. 
you'll see truth at the cross. You'll also see God's mercy and grace and love because there God provided a way through Christ for sinners like you and me to have our sin transferred to Christ as if He did it. And then God poured His wrath out upon Christ on the cross in punishment for our sin in our place. The cross tells you the truth about your sin, your punishment, but also the love of God. How how marvelous is God's love that He would impute our sin to Christ and then punish Him for it so that He could impute Christ's goodness to us and reward us for what He did and give us eternal life. That's salvation. There's God's provision. And here's God's promise that all who look upon the Son All who look on the Son and believe in Him alone for salvation should have eternal life. And God says, I will raise Him up on that last day. John 6 and verse 40. And so you have God's exhortation to you. Look on the Son and believe. Turn from sin. Turn from self-righteousness. You cannot save yourself. You You cannot add to what Christ has already done. He has done everything that you need for salvation. Simply look to Him. Trust in Him. And you have God's promise that He will give you everlasting life. These are the things that the story of Ruth teaches us. And in God's providence, may He draw all of us into that place where He may be our God and we His people. Would you stand with me? And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we've seen the story of Ruth begin to unfold in this first scene, we are captivated by your steadfast love and your faithfulness, working through all kinds of providence. We pray that you would be at work in us for your glory. Cause us to rejoice, we pray, in it, and respond with humble repentance. We thank you, Father. Do your good work. And bless this next part of our service where our brother and sister will confess their faith and be baptized. Thank you for them. We pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.